as we continue worshiping together today, receive the words of scripture from the second book of Kings, the fifth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent his servant, his messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in rage. But his servant approached him and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. And now I invite all of us together as one family to pray together. Loving God, here we are, praying for your grace, 
for your spirit to move among us, for your word to be received. I pray that would happen, O God, because of or in spite of me today. For we need a word from you to strengthen and guide us for the living of these days. I pray in the power and the love of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amen. Some of the most animated and intense debates that I have witnessed among the Foundry family have to do with the question, what is the best barbecue? <laughs> this was particularly intense in the days of the Reverend Don Hand, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> However, the debates continue with some not small intensity. Now, I know that by mentioning this at the beginning of my message, I run the risk of distracting everyone with the things that you might want to pipe up and say about this, or I could be distracting you about all the things that you would like to eat. <laughs> and of course, only I and those joining us online have a capacity to weigh in, though I know some of you might you know, feel free. You are, after all, free in Christ to say what you need to say. Um, but I will admit that Texas brisket served on paper in a structure that's only one step up from a barn and adjacent to a cow pasture is just about as good as it gets. I, I see at least one hand raising in a hallelujah. And so I'm just, I know I, okay, all right. I have some, some colleagues in this debate. Um, but with others, I have generally stayed out of it. I mostly observe all this business about Carolina and Memphis and Kansas City and Texas and vinegar or ketchup or is there mustard? I don't know. Anyway, it's fascinating to observe these, these conversations. Unfortunately, playful debates about who has the best barbecue or verbal sparring about sports team loyalties or perhaps uh, the best video games, I don't know, um, is not the kind of relatively friendly debates currently saturating our country. On the eve of Independence Day, a day that historically has celebrated the blessings of liberty, of self-determination, and the high ideals of our nation, we find ourselves even more fractured than perhaps we've always been. The insurrection of January 6th, 2021, and the revelations shared in the public hearings about that event are but one outrageous and deeply disturbing example. I could list so many more examples, but I will spare you. The bottom line is that the United States is not united. The enemy lines are drawn among and between us. We are a nation at war with ourselves. 
Of course, this is nothing new in human history. Tribes and nations have fought and raided and joined and then split and then moved boundaries and then invaded and then warred again since the ancient of days. It's one of the things that we seem to be the best at. And God has consistently raised up prophets to proclaim the ways of justice and of peace, to call leaders and nations and peoples to turn toward the great commandment to love God and to love neighbor. Elisha was one of those prophets And our text today is part of the Elisha's greatest hits story cycle found in 2 Kings. Our question for today, the title of the sermon, is inspired by the question found in verse 12 of our text. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I invite us to review the context and to see what this question and the story may have to say to us in our current difficult moment in our nation's history. Israel and Aram, later called Syria, share a border and we're always at one another. Raids and wars between the nations were frequent. And our story picks up in Aram with a description of the powerful Aramean warrior Naaman, who suffers from leprosy, which is a word that uh, was applied to a number of different skin diseases in the Bible. A little Israeli girl who was taken captive in a raid and now serving Naaman's wife shares that there is a prophet in Samaria, the capital city of Israel, who could cure that illness of Naaman. And so Naaman, getting word of this, works the official protocol. He's already in good with the king. He works the official protocol and asks for permission from the king to cross the border and seek the cure. The king agrees and sends Naaman on his way, not only with a ridiculous show of wealth, but also with a letter to the Israeli king, which in essence says, I am sending Naaman so that you can cure him. And we don't actually know if the Aramean king meant to make no mention of the prophet, or if he just hit send too soon. But the king of Israel receives this letter from the king of Aram as a setup and tears his clothes in distress. I mean, he goes from zero to 100 in no time. He assumes that what he knows will be his failure to be able to heal Naaman will be used as an excuse for further aggression from the king of Aram. He thinks that that the king of Aram is scheming an attack. And if you are the king of Israel and you believe that the king of Aram is scheming an attack after you've torn your clothes, what do you do? 
You start banging the war drum and calling together your own troops. Elisha, the prophet, steps in and shuts that reptilian brain down. In essence, saying, hello, remember me? So Naaman is directed to Elisha's place and proceeds to get offended that he isn't greeted by the prophet with the honor he believes is due his station or given any kind of showy ritual. But he only receives instructions from a lowly messenger to wash in the Jordan River seven times. Side note, the Jordan is always associated with crossing into a new life, and the number seven is the number used in the Bible most often to denote completeness, wholeness, or perfection. Evidently, Naaman didn't know that because he marches off in a rage. Naaman's pride is on full display and it's in the middle of his temper tantrum that he sputters out the really ridiculous question, aren't my rivers better than theirs? And I imagine, you know how I do, I imagine what comes after that in his mind, if not out of his mouth. You think your nation is better than my nation? You think your stuff is better than my stuff? You think you are more powerful than me? And I can imagine him now storming off back to Aram to gather his troops and show who really has the power, whose country really is great. The ones who risk offering a word of reason into the moment this time are Naaman's servants. Seriously, dude, this is easy. Why not just wash? So Naaman goes and does as Elisha has instructed, and the text says his flesh was restored. And there are some fairly basic lessons in this story, including the benefits of sharing resources across boundaries, especially when there's a big illness going around, just saying, and the importance of doing a careful edit of that email before hitting send. But the thing I want us to look at more closely today are the pivot points in the story, the choices of key persons and the outcomes of those choices. The first person I want to lift up is the young Israeli slave in Naaman's household. We don't know why she spoke up to share that there was a prophet in Israel who could heal her captor, but she did. This girl has often been romanticized by interpreters in all sorts of ways. I will not do that. But simply observing what it says in the story, I will acknowledge that an extraordinarily vulnerable young person, and it's clear in the original Hebrew that this is a child, a young person, 
that this extraordinarily vulnerable young girl spoke a word of kindness in a time of hostility. And even in the midst of what had to be her own unimaginable pain. That act leads to Naaman's restored health, and if you read further in the story, to his spiritual conversion. The second person to lift up is the prophet, Elisha, who manages to convince the king to pipe down, to be reasonable, and to remember that he didn't have to manage the situation alone. Even if the Aramean king intended the visit of Naaman as an opportunity to stir up more tension and violence, Elisha wisely kept the king of Israel from taking the bait. The servants of Naaman are the last group I want to mention. I mean, they're confronting a ragey warrior with wounded pride who is sick. These servants show some kind of courage to intervene in that situation. Yet their doing so kept Naaman from any further violence from him. And it got him to the Jordan and to the healing that he sought. The choices and actions of the little girl of Elisha, of Naaman's servants, did not did not bring lasting peace between Israel and Aram. But I contend that their actions, their choices provide guidance for such a time as the one that we're living. They seem to have recognized the foolishness of pride and thoughtless rage and of comparing rivers and getting caught in the triggers that lead to conflict. And from where most of them lived, they would have known well where the burden of all of the wars and suffering would land the most. This story called to my mind the reflections of those who experienced the brutality of the concentration camps during World War II. Among them, Viktor Frankl, Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, philosopher, writer, and Holocaust survivor who wrote these words. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the people who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. There were always, he says, choices to make. Every day, every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision, 
a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you become the plaything to circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity. Even in a time of violence and chaos and injustice, and suffering, and twilight zone outrageousness, and fears of the rise of the very forces that led to atrocities about which humans have bowed through the ages never again. Even now, you and I have choices each day, every hour, every moment, about how we will respond to circumstances. Will we be kind? Will we be wise? Will we be brave? Will we hold on to our own freedom and dignity? We can choose to be human even in the swirl of reptilian energies that want to draw us into reactivity and ugliness. Our beautiful, bruised world doesn't need more hatred or aggression or piling on. It doesn't need more ragey Facebook posts or calling out unless it's done very, very carefully and with love. The world, the world doesn't need more hate. It needs people who, by God's grace, have the strength to love or at least to want to love, or to try to love. The world needs people who seek peace and justice without destroying others. It needs those who resist injustice without allowing their humanity to be devoured by hatred of the other. Sacred resistance calls us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression without becoming the very thing we struggle against. What this beautiful, broken world and nation needs are humans seeking to live with other humans with curiosity and patience and appreciation and in peace and who don't ask silly questions about whose river is best, who don't go around saying that love is spewing words of hate, who don't proffer and teach their children that the God who has said that the center of it all is love 
thinks that love looks like harming siblings because they love. That's just bad algebra. What this beautiful, broken world needs are humans seeking to be human together and not doing harm, but rejoicing together. Not worrying about silly questions about whose river is best, but who rejoice together at all the wonderful rivers that God has given us to share. <laughs> it's about asking the right question. How can we share all of the amazing, abundant gifts that God has given us? Not whose gift is best, and let me fight you for it. What this beautiful, broken world needs are humans working with other humans who wonder together and give thanks for the gifts of God and then work together to discern how to care for all of those gifts and how finally, in the fullness of time, to learn how to care for one another. May it be so. Amen. <laughs>